Hey, everybody. Welcome to tonight's Late Night Happy Hour. Brian Kamenetsky and Andy Kamenetsky. Uh, it is, what is it, Wednesday night? I don't know. It is Wednesday night. It is Wednesday night. The Lakers just finished just a gruesome 114-113 win over the Oklahoma City Thunder. Again, going to overtime, uh, seemingly unnecessarily. Uh, we're going to be joined here in just a moment by Chris Johnson, uh, of course, champion UCLA Bruin from the 94-95 uh, national title team. He's going to be joining us in just a second to talk uh, NBA, talk a little bit of college, and uh, kind of just recount some stuff. He had, some, uh, he had a great career overseas, uh, which is just a, if, you, if you don't know what that life is like for guys who go and do it that way, it's totally fascinating. So we'll, we'll talk about all that kind of stuff. Um, it is it's, – it's, it's, it's – I'm not going to say these games mean or like is like like symbolic of something. You know, you go to two overtimes or whatever again with Oklahoma City. Andy Anthony Davis isn't playing, and uh, Alex Caruso is not playing, and that's a whole separate thing. But it ain't good, and it's just it's just there he is. There you go. What's up, What's up man? How you doing? I'm well. How are you? Had a little bit of technical difficulties, but um, that's all right. So so wait. So you were having issues with Chrome? Yeah. So I, I did. The issue was I didn't set Chrome as my default browser. Okay. So when you try to copy paste, it's not working. You know, it's sending you through the whole rigmarole. So I figured it out real quick. Yeah. Okay, what then, we what we realized, Chris, is that we should have told you all of this information earlier when we, when we spoke on the phone. Like, and like you know, we spoke for like a half hour at a great time. We never actually mentioned any of this stuff. No, it's well, the, the other reason, though, I was I was specifically concerned about your Chrome experience is because uh, a couple weeks ago when Metal World Peace was on with us, he ended up uh, having to upload Chrome because he didn't have anything but Safari. And he didn't realize this really until he realized he was already 15 minutes late for the show. I was wondering. But, then, <laughs> but like once that, and, and Meta was great. Once he, once he joined us, he was fantastic. Uh, he gave us extra time. He, he was, you know, he was Meta. Meta's yeah. always awesome. But I was like, oh my God, did we, did it turn out we made now a second person download Chrome? And then in this, and then in this case, it wasn't even necessary. We just, we just had this poor guy taking up space on his laptop. So I'm glad to know that it was just a, like a weird quirk. Man, it happens. It happens. I just feel bad because like every time we tell, like we're all about the same age, the three of us. And every time we, we tell somebody, um, hey, uh, you need to you you can't use Safari. If we tell that to a person of a certain age, they're like, who the fuck uses Safari? <laughs> so I always feel bad having to point it out. Oh jeez! All right, so we were just talking about this, like the, uh, and we'll, we'll get to. We got all kinds of stuff we want to talk about with you, Chris, tonight. Talk UCLA, uh, go back to you know all that. But like, we were, we were, we were talking tonight's game. Okay. It's all right. I'm not going to sit here. We're not going to take like huge lessons, like what it means for the Lakers when they have when they struggle without Anthony Davis, no uh, Caruso. But like three games in a row against bad teams, where you go into overtime. It's it's not good. It's like they they look tired, and it just makes them more so. Like when you watch something like this, what were you thinking? Well, I was actually just thinking to myself, just like you know how they look like shit the whole game, but like most championship teams do, turn it on when it counts, and that's that's 
you know, you can say, hey, you know, they're supposed to blow out these bad teams. They're supposed to dominate. We're supposed to look great every game. But I'm into finding different ways to win, win ugly. To me, that builds character as a crew. Uh, you saw Coos, uh at the end of the game making plays, trying to keep the game alive. Wes Matthews, um, Montrez. I mean, guys are, guys are taking each game each opportunity on the floor, seriously, like, you know, they have a sense of pride on that Laker team. And so that's kind of what I took out of that. Like, hey, this is Oklahoma City. You know, we can look like boo-boo, throw it away. I'm going to lose it. <laughs> which <laughs> time, though? You're going to have to be more specific. Wait, which, <laughs> it, it, was, mean, one, was one game more boo-boo-y than the other? Or? Well, well, you know, I, I mean, look, AD Caruso or is obviously going to disrupt the chemistry right? Rotational chemistry. And to me, you're at the point of the season where you can disrupt that chemistry and still get a W. Guys are ready to play, step up, fill a role, help you get a win. It's all about getting a win at the end of the day, no matter how pretty or ugly it is, guys. And so that's what I took from it. I can't lament over how bad they look. That's for Vogel, Miles, and all those, and Jason Kidd, and all those guys on that staff to do. Um, I'm just glad they got a win. LeBron James, what can you say about that man? I mean, come I, on. I, I got to say, at 36 years old, I was a little bit surprised he didn't take that last shot and just chuck it into the ninth row just so he could go home. Like, <laughs> double overtime against Detroit, another overtime against OKC. I'd have thrown that thing into the 11th row and be like, guys, I need to get some sleep. I'm going home. Yeah, I mean, but LeBron's a competitor, man. I mean, you know this. I mean, this is what makes him. This is what really defines who he has been for the last 18 years. So, you know, like like when you saw him make the shot against Detroit the other night, you saw him walking away with sort of that swaggy sort of attitude, waving his hand, like, you know. like And that, and that just encapsulated for me and him. He's like, man, I've been doing this for 20 years. You know, he sounded like the old man, you know, sort of. And, and you know, he's tired of it. He well, I, I wasn't sure if he meant he's been doing it for 20 years, like going back to high school or that game. Like that game felt it was twenty years. <laughs> no, <he never laughs> and you guys are true Laker fans, man. You guys, if you guys had hair, you probably be pulling it out all night long. I get it. I'm in the same boat. But I mean, guys, we gotta just we gotta take the wins when we can. I mean, you know, I, that's all I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, it, one thing that's really stood out to me the last couple of weeks, and to your point, Chris, I think this gets exacerbated by the absences of uh, AD and Caruso. They look collectively like the the short turnaround from the finals to where we are now is actually starting to catch up to them a bit. Because the beginning of the season, I don't know, maybe they were either running on sort of the adrenaline of knowing they're about to start defending that title, or they had just been really geared up with the idea of okay, we we gotta we're in the shit now. And I know we were just in it, but we're back in it again, and we gotta do this thing. And they were excited about having all the new pieces and blah, blah, blah. These last couple weeks, even before you take into account double overtime, two regular overtimes, they've started looking a little more stuck in the mud. They're, they do. But again, guys, you know, that long road trip they went on, you know, five and two. We'll take it. You know, oh, yeah. it, wasn't, it wasn't pretty. It wasn't pretty. And I don't expect anybody to really be just, you know, dom- motoring through the league. I mean, the league, it's it's pretty competitive. Everybody's kind of playing under these weird circumstances. And so I think every night is going to be 
you know, depending on the situation for, for the Lakers, especially though, everybody, they're going to get their best shot. And at some point they had to look, they have to go through this process. They have to go through the mud. They have to get stuck in the mud, get themselves out of the mud. But if you can get some wins while you're in the mud, I mean, you know, you're doing a good job as a, as a staff. Let me ask you actually a question, because this is something I've seen speculated a lot by fans, by media, and I've, I've heard players talk about this, but I'm curious to get your reaction as somebody, you know, who's who's played professionally, who's played at, you know, uh, uh, you played at UCLA, you won a national championship, and, you know, you're talking about just crazy crowds. How difficult do you think it is for, like, game whatever this is, I don't know, 25, whatever we are at this point, middle of the season to be continually geared up when there aren't fans. Like how, how much of a, like a, an actual obstacle is that? It just depends on, I really believe the individual player. Uh, some guys thrive off of that energy that the fans bring that, you know, that back and forth, especially, you know, road games away. I know LeBron's a guy that loves, performing in front of the fans he thrives off that energy i just think that those guys as professionals like even though it may bother them at the end of the day you are hooping you're out there playing basketball um when you're in practice there's no fans and you play some of your best basketball when there's nobody around fans gym so i think you know they lock in as athletes and and, and it becomes less about you know who's in the stands and you know you kind of hone in and focus on what your goals are as a team that night. And, and then you kind of start to block that stuff out. Cause when fans are there, you're blocking them out anyway, especially when, you know, as far as when you're shooting and sometimes it, it's just peripheral vision. You see these people there, but the high level guys, NBA, they engage and they talk to guys walking to the sideline, things like that. So I can't really speak to that. I can only speak to what I imagine it must be like. You know mm -hmm. And well, uh, it's just, it's a different kind of grind. I mean, the guys talked about it last year. I mean, LeBron will tell you in, like just incredible detail about every aspect of the bubble and how much he hated it and all this other stuff. This is a different deal. It's, you know, you're traveling, but you're, I think it's worse. You're even more isolated when you travel. Um, Cause you can't really genuinely truly can't go anywhere. And the Lakers to their credit have been one of the only really, I think one of a couple teams left that haven't been impacted uh, with, with COVID protocols in any significant way. I, mentally, it's 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 different than last year, but it's still a grind, and it's a different kind of grind. I don't blame them for getting a little bit tired, and then you factor in the you know, you know the the incredibly short off season. I my only concern, I guess, is just where where you find like if AD is banged up, like where does the rest come? Like there is it's a relentless schedule this season. Uh, you just you start to like where they're landmines. I think in this. Well, that's a good point you guys make. Now, if that if you know if you guys want to make that point, especially as far as LeBron, 43 minutes, 44, 42, mm -hmm. you know, 36 years old at this stage of the season. I understand that as far as like, you know, hey, let's preserve the Lamborghini a little bit. Let's not run him into the ground. And, you know, you know, you know, I get that part. But I also get the part of, you know, where they're coming from and, and the role that they're on. And, and if LeBron wants to test his body, push himself to the limit, he knows his body the best. He's prepared himself better than any athlete probably in history um, as far as performing at this long, at, at this high of a level in basketball. Um, so, you know, I, you, you make a good point, but you, you got to go with, look, it would be smart to load manage this guy, but golly, 
Laker Nation's not going to love that. I mean, you don't care. You care about what they feel, but you do want to get the win. See, you know what's funny, Chris, is I feel like what, what Laker fans really want is LeBron to be more load managed or, if nothing else, not to have to exert himself, not to have to make huge plays down the stretch and have AD carry it. Right. And really what they've gotten is the opposite. Like, I, I actually think Laker fans, all things being equal, would prefer LeBron be put on ice and, like, they barely have to use him. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Unless they have to. I, I agree. I agree. They definitely want that. I mean, but here's the thing. LeBron is so – like, whenever you ever load manage LeBron, you know what I mean? I mean, he's never – that's never really been sort of the option. Just like, you know, him playing completely off the basketball. You know, that's just something that just doesn't happen in LeBron's career where, hey, hey, take it over. You know, he has to get on the ball just like I feel like he has to be in the game. But but what do you do when AD gets hurt? You know, what do you do? Who's going to step right. up? And they don't have it yet. And you can't win with with a with the AD and a Caruso out. If if you don't, if you play LeBron 30, 26, 30, 35 minutes, then that means Trez, Kuz, everybody else that have uh, Schroeder has to have monster games. And, you know, they, they, they haven't been doing that. So, what you- And it's also, too, it's like, you know, LeBron James can choose when how much he's going to play. Like, you know, you can say, Frank, Frank, get out there and, you know, Frank Vogel's the coach. Like, really? Like, you know, like, you know, like when Kobe, like when oh, people God. complain that Mike D'Antoni ruined Kobe by playing him that much as if D'Antoni had any vote on how many minutes Kobe was going to play exactly. trying to drag that team into Kobe, the playoffs. Kobe used to wave off Phil when Absolutely. Phil would try to check him out. Like, Absolutely. if you think Phil doesn't have complete control over Kobe's minutes, what do you think is going on with Mike D'Antoni? Exactly. And those guys, that's high-level superstars. So, so it's a conundrum, guys. But, you know, again, at the end of the day, Lakers win, baby. What do you? I the 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 thing that I find alarming, sort of long term, about the team. Again, I'm not. Oh my God! They you know, Detroit took him to double overtime. Well, apparently Detroit only plays good teams well. But um, the shooting, which was fantastic at the beginning of the year, has really tailed off. Last ten games, Lakers are shooting thirty four percent from three point range. Last five, that does not include tonight, where they were twenty eight percent. They're shooting thirty one percent from from three. Mm-hmm. How you know KCP is cooled off? Uh, Caruso's really cooled off from three. Kuz is not quite as prolific as he was, although he's been refreshingly consistent, relatively speaking. Well, how much different is this team if, if the three point shooting that they had at the beginning of the year doesn't sustain itself, particularly with AD and that outside game that he was showing last year? doesn't sustain itself they want him shooting more threes not fewer and he's not doing it yeah it's gonna it's it's a as you know it's a shot making league so you know you are as good as pretty much how many threes you can make because everybody else they're going to be knocking down shots you got to match them and so for the lakers though finding other ways to score so now you know your transition game has to go up you got to cut attacks different types of, of of offensive you know strategy um, while you're in this slump, but you still have to take those open shots. You saw the frustration for Wes Matthews when he knocked down that three sort of at the end of the game. He's kind of, you know, walking down towards the bench, you know, looking up in the sky. And that's kind of, you know, where everybody's at. You know, it's it's sort of like, you know, <laughs> you have to shoot yourself out of it. You know, there's no slump buster, if you will, but un- other than shots, other than shooting, taking the same shots, finding your rhythm, working on it in practice, 
you just got to keep taking those shots because you're going to get those shots. And it's really, you know, it's, it's imperative to that offense that you take them. So how good do you think they are as in, like when it's all said and done, how good an outside shooting team do you think they really are? Um, you know, it, look, if LeBron's, you know, shooting like he's capable, KCP, AD, and, and, you know, the other guys, it's all gravy, in my opinion. I think, that, I, you know, I don't know what the numbers say, but I think they're good enough. They're the type of team that hit shots, knock down threes when it really counts. I look at that more so, like, if I looked at the Lakers stats to see what type of threes they're hitting to go ahead, you know, in the last, you know, five to seven, ten minutes of a game, I'm sure that their numbers are a lot better than their overall threes. So that's pretty – That's that's more – would be my concern with a team like the Lakers. When are you knocking down these shots, these threes? When when does it matter most? I guess would be because like you know we tonight we I would have said first quarter so everybody could go home early. But you know what I mean? Like we we tend to focus so much on the last like five minutes of games, the last three minutes of games. But you know these are all moments building on top of each other. Like, does it matter more how you're doing at the beginning in terms of tone being set or sort of the foundation you're building for yourself or what you have to dig out of? Well, you know, I, some coaches pr probably, you know, place a different value on, you know, what matters to them. So I can't, you know, I don't think there's a universal answer. Um, although end of quarters, you know, that's a very important time. The way you close quarters in the NBA, the way you start quarters, et cetera, they, they look at that thing, the end of halves, et cetera. Um, so I think that those are the, the times of the game. Like when you start off, you know, again, like to your point about setting the tone, you hit a, you knock, you throw it in the AD, first five possessions, he gets double three of those, you kick it out, you know, you're two for three from the three, you know, sets the tone. Now they're not sending the double as much anymore, and now AD's got more room to work, et cetera. And then that becomes the dance and the rhythm for, you know, offense, defense for a little bit until some other stuff starts to happen. So, so I mean, I can't, <laughs> for, for me, the fourth quarter, when you're my last five minutes, you're knocking down shots. That resonates with to me personally the most. I, I will say, like, and, and I'm not saying this to make excuses for the Lakers because they they should have had an easier time against OKC than they did. But like, it is weird, I think, for teams when they're when they're going up against someone where like basically everybody who matter is hurt. Like tonight, like Shea Gilgis Alexander wasn't there. Rubio wasn't playing. Like, I don't blame them if they weren't exactly sure what to do with Kendrick Williams because I don't know who that guy is. Right. <laughs> like, like, I'm sure a lot right, of these that guys. Little, that little What is that? What is that? That, that is the like worst Afro hair in the NBA. It's an mullet, Afro mullet. It's an Afro mullet. I don't know what that thing was. <laughs> that is the no. worst looking hair I have seen in a long time. But no, to your point, you know, Look, they when, when, okay. You, you you prepare for a certain guy. You know a guy's tendencies. You know how a team plays with their main guys. Their main guys are out. You know, obviously, you know. Then the younger guys kind of come in with some fresh legs and some like new, balled up sort of energy. I mean, that Lou Gens Dort is just man. He's a monster out there. So when these guys come in the game, some of these guys haven't played. You know, they're hungry. They're thirsty. They want to get buckets, and they're going at they're going. At the LeBrons, they're going at everybody. <laughs> so, you know, that part of it, I, I, you know, I can't blame the Lakers, but as a pro, and when you have goals and a standard of basketball that you set out to, to, to maintain throughout the course of the season, 
you know, you got to step up and you got to dominate. So that's uh, <laughs> from hearing from uh, Southern Royalty Seven on Texas. the chat. Learn about Texas boys. That's a Texas haircut <laughs> with regards to Kendrick Williams. Again, I don't know anything about him. I just looked him up. He is from Waco, played at TCU. That might just be the explanation. They different down in Texas, man. That is a scathing <laughs> indictment of Texas, by the way. Which, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, a state that doesn't even need scathing I, indictments. I mean, that is form my opinion. As a as a as a ball player, like you walk out on the floor and you see that, like that's got to be distracting. Well, you laugh. Right? You know, you chuckle to yourself. You, you start, you know. You might want to, you know, on the free throw line at some point in the game when you get next to him, you might want to be like, hey, man, where you get that haircut, man? What the hell is that? <laughs> I, <laughs> you might say something to him. I just feel, I just feel like it's disrespectful because he has a full, rich head of hair. Yes. Like Kendrick Williams is not short on hair. It's not like he's he's doing like some sort of weird comb over to like the mullet covers something up. He's pulling it forward. Like that is disrespectful. That, that new era NBA flavor, man. <laughs> I don't know. I, just, I, I feel I like he was like trolling me. Like that is disrespectful <laughs> to do that to your hair when you have it. Yeah, I'm not I, buying that. Again, like I'm not, I, I'm not as familiar with him as I should have been. So tonight was like a real eye opener. <laughs> like yeah. that, like both. I guess his potential as a player and yeah. good for him because he had a terrific game. But it's also a real eye opener of like you need you need to have like a heart to heart with your barber. Like you, you really, you guys need to have like a come to Jesus moment. And maybe that means finding a new one. Like, I don't know. Like something needs to be fixed. Or if it's your barber, he needs to have a come to Jesus moment with you. Like if, if that's what you ask for when you go in there. Hey, maybe that gives him strength. That's his source of strength, like Samson or something like that. I don't, I don't know. think it's worth it. <laughs> you know what? I, I I would take just bouncing around the league as opposed to establishing myself. If, if wow. that's the price I have to pay. No, I'd take that haircut. Yeah, I, I yeah, me too. Give me that. For like you know, like a seven-year career, what I bank with it. The, the worst thing is every picture's got me with that haircut. But I mean, I'm set you for life. Pitch. You are in the picture with the crazy on. Okay, that's that true. That's right, that is true. I, I, I really, I should think this through more. <laughs> like, I, who am I kidding? I would take the hair and the money. <laughs> I mean, I'm working with this, and I'm not making jack off. Exactly. It, so I might as well just exactly. take the money. Exactly. And so we, we were, uh, we were talking earlier before the show, just uh, getting to know you a bit. And we were talking a bit about your high school background. I forgot to mention this to you. Uh, you uh, for people who aren't familiar, you played at Crenshaw, then you eventually went to UCLA. You were part of the '95 championship team when you were a freshman. I found an old uh, LA Times article that named all the different uh, all the different players of the year um, for for your graduating class. You know, across across LA. Okay. And all the breakdowns they had of these different players, like Toby Bailey, your teammate Tremaine Folks, uh, Andre Miller, um, Ricky Blackman, like all the I mean, all these different guys got just pure, pure compliments. I look at the beginning of yours, Christian Johnson Crenshaw. Although he sometimes appears awkward with the ball, <laughs> Johnson, who averaged 23.3 points and 9.2 rebounds, was one of the toughest players to defend, especially when he backed his way towards the basket. Like, you're a high school kid. What's up with that? Hey, man. That's I rough. I don't know what was up with that, but that always kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Awkward? What do you mean awkward? Now, look, if I look at myself at that footage, I was, you know, I was about 6'5", about 260, right? We were wearing really short shorts. 
I kind of had a you know tight jersey, so I didn't really, you know, I wasn't buff like I am now. No, I'm not really that buff, but <laughs> but you know, back then I was, you know, a little portly, so I can understand it. But gosh, you could have been, you know, a little less. Or just or point out a flaw for every player, <laughs> like you know, hey. Andre Miller looks like he could be a great college player, but this is the thing that he needs to work. like. They described Andre Miller in this thing as explosive. I've never heard Andre Miller describe that. Tells, that tells you all you need to know about who wrote. Yeah, it. like right. everybody got all compliments, but you. Oh, yeah, I mean, I don't know, man. I don't know what was that about. But hey, I, I was glad and honored to be named in that you know situation. So I'll take it. But like you know, when you L.A. has such a distinct, like you know, the, just the basketball culture here is so strong. And there are so many teams, like we were talking about, like whether you're talking high school teams, AAU teams or whatever. Like I remember like the, the Trevor Ariza team is like sort of legendary for like, you look at like that AAU team is like filled with guys who all play in the NBA. You go back and, you know, some Crenshaw teams that are incredible. And I, where do you like, you know, who are some of like, some of the, like the era that you played in? You talk about Andre Miller and some of these other guys at Andy's. Like, how do you kind of categorize the, the era that you come from okay. coming out of Crenshaw in 94, correct? Yeah, 94, the 90s. So, you know, the way, you know, the 90s, it was it was a pretty competitive era of basketball. Tony Gonzalez was also, I, I didn't mention oh, that. Oh, yeah. Hall of Fame tight end, Tony Gonzalez. I, I matched up against him in the playoffs that year. So he was a contemporary as well. And there were a lot of guys. That were around that could that that were really high level went high level Division One, so I, I feel like my era was, um, you know, it's up there. It's up there with among the best that you know Southern California has had. Um, you know, we obviously the the Westchester that you mentioned, and then some recent years with some pretty monster classes and players. But I think that you know our era kind of, you know, established sort of the new wave of because uh, we were kind of you know we you know we tried to be you know, like Michigan and things like that. My first year, we had the short shorts, but my senior year, you know, we came out looking with the Michigan Fab Five uniforms and, and all the swag, and we were ranked number one in the country uh, for about three weeks, and then we lost. We finished number three. So we, ran, we were ranked top five both years, and, you know, obviously I had my personal successes, but my teammate, Tremaine Folks, um, was one of, one, of, one of the best teammates I ever had. You know, he, he ended up getting drafted in the NBA, and Miles Simon, uh, one of my contemporaries, my, my, my rival at modern day high school out here in Southern California, uh, he ended up getting drafted. So it was a ton of guys that either played pro, got drafted, or, um, you know, really played at a high level. And so I, I feel like our era was, you know, in, in amongst the best that ever in Southern California. This is, this is a question that we ask all the time to people. Um, when we, when we talk LA hoops and stuff like that, what, what do you think makes, the hoops culture out here distinctive. What do you think makes players out here distinctive? Like, you know, because we talked about this with Meta when we had him on, like, he's got a Queens game. Like, that's, you know, like you can tell regionally where guys come from. What is an LA basketball player? Yeah. Well, an LA basketball player is probably a guy that could, you know, do a lot of different things. So he's, he's, he's complete. He's well-rounded. You know, I won't, I, you know, back in when I was coming up, the New York guys kind of had a style of being great off the bounce tough nose defenders they usually were creators 
um, but they weren't the greatest jump shoot. So they had kind of broke jumpers. And a lot of the stories I would hear was like, you know, from the New York guys, they would say, well, you guys got weather, you know, you guys got that type of weather out here. Y'all can work on y'all jumper all year, year long, son. You know, y'all can work on y'all jumper. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know if that was true or not, <laughs> but, you know, I started to think about it. Yeah. And, and out here you, you do have the ability, and this is if you're playing outside. So now you're talking about access to gyms growing up. And what's the difference in that in New York and leagues and how much basketball are you playing on a 12-month basis? I think that part of it, you know, I'm not sure if they do that in New York. I know the winter months, sure, you could be grinding, but that takes away the outside game. You know what I mean? Winter months in L.A., you still got people that are working on their stuff. I also think, um, and especially in recent years, in probably the last 20, 25 years, um, the L.A. basketball player, the evolution of the L.A. basketball player has kind of, you know, it's it's gone from sort of, you know, my dad, John Williams, um, Paul Pierce, and, and these big kind of, when I say the, ba- the evolution of the L.A. basketball player, I'm talking about like the top sort of guys mm-hmm. coming out. You know, obviously B.D., you know, he was one of them, but now it's morphed into, you know, sort of these other guys, the James Harden and, you know, Paul George says L.A. or not, you know, um, Kawhi. <laughs> it depends who you ask. <laughs> it depends on you. Playoff, you know, that's my guy. But, you know, but again, so it's it's kind of turned into, you know, they've kind of taken what my dad and Paul and Don were to kind of another level as far as that NBA forward, that, that this multi-talented, versatile guy. Well, it's interesting you say that because Brian and I have actually we we've been as he said before like really fascinated by just L.A. basketball culture, but also I this could be the bias of us living here a long time, but I I think L.A. has become the basketball epicenter of this country. Like in a way, thirty or forty years ago, it was New York. Like you know, it definitely was. But if you look at the region that's creating the most pros like it's LA if you if you look at just the talent that's coming out you know really anywhere across this this country and then you know you combine the fact that the Lakers are the Lakers the Clippers the last you know 15 or so years have started to become a you know they've started to become a more credible team UCLA it doesn't matter where they are as far as the the program itself it's still going to be a thing because it's UCLA you know, the Sparks are one of the iconic franchises in the WNBA. You put all of that together, and I, and I really do feel like, like Los Angeles, our own biases aside, it's really now the city that matters the most in, in this country when it comes to basketball. Definitely. It's definitely where all the action is happening, especially in the NBA offseason. And, and the last yes. episode, Rico Hines, uh, the assistant coach for the Sacramento Kings, he organized a run. A summertime sort of workout run, sort of training camp scenario, pseudo training camp situations up at the men's gym at UCLA for the, for about the last decade or so. And all the pros from LeBron to KD to James Harden to Kyrie have all came through, all spent some time here. And, you know, players know this. And so everybody flocks here, all the overseas guys, you know, it becomes a whole just everybody descends on LA in the summertime and that that trickles down throughout the culture on all levels. Well, I mean, you got more guys too just living here in the off season. Like, yeah. you know, they they they're all here. Like whereas, you know, I mean th- those UCLA closed gym runs, you know, they they've always been like a thing of legend, but it feels like there's more games and outlets for these guys now 
and also with like with the money that's gone up in the NBA, like there's more opportunity to have multiple homes. Like, because yeah. like mm-hmm. remember, remember. Uh, oh, I know exactly what you're gonna say. It's my favorite story of all time. When uh, <laughs> when Garnett was rumored to be coming to the Lakers, remember like one of the big things was oh he's got a house in Malibu. He must he must want to be a Laker. And look, in fairness, he did actually want to be a Laker. But the big tip-off about Garnett having a house in Malibu was he's really rich. Yeah, like that's actually what it really meant. Like, I mean, whether he wanted to, he wanted to be a Laker, Lakers could have been a dumpster fire. He still would have had that house, right? Because it's Malibu, and Garnett at the time I think might have been the highest-paid player in the league. Yeah. So like, and and the you know the mid-level money now like puts players at a place now where you know you want to rent a condo. For you know, year round. like I'm a I'm a 24 year old, 25 year old, 26 year old, you know, single athlete, like professional athlete with millions of dollars in the bank, or you know, can afford whatever I want. Damn right, I'm going to have a house in LA. I don't care if it's not the epicenter of of, of basketball in the off season. No I want a house in Los Angeles or a great condo or something that is good for you, you know, professionally. Even better, but you're right. Like I, when you talk about that trickle down, though, with all the guys being here in the off season and playing in those games and stuff like that, what where, where does that where does that reach? Like, why is that so important? So now you get you get the youth involved. They get to see these guys. They get to you know maybe meet them, see them play, and these experiences are some of the most valuable experiences that you can have as a young man. So I think that. <clears throat> And, and so, and, and then the trickle down happens not only just in LA. And this is this is a point I wanted to bring up too, and why it seems like LA, and I think we should really modify that to Southern California, uh, is that Orange County and the IE have gotten exponentially better. Yeah. From 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 the AAU level all the way up to the pro level, as far as talent that they're producing, the type of player. So you know you got guys coming out there that now some some of us you know that 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 people do claim to be LA, but I think it's more of a Southern California deal. San Diego has some has some really solid. Jared Dudley is one of those guys that came out of there. There's other guys that are you know that that have those roots down there. I just think that you know the ability to go drive somewhere to a gym, see some pros, meet some pros. That just I mean what that does for you as a youth, it just kind of you know it turns you out. And then you know these guys also. They're not just coming to L.A. just to vacation, just chill. They're doing things out here in the community. They're showing up at tournaments. I see these guys. They'll show up at a tournament. Shoot, I did an event last winter at Bishop Montgomery High School, and Kevin KD came through. So, I mean, KD shows up. He wanted to see Josh Christopher, a kid out of Mayfair, who's a, who's um who's at Arizona State now, play against another kid at Long Beach Poly, but he shows up to the game. And so when you when you have guys, and that's because he's in L.A., and that doesn't happen if you're not out here hanging out, chilling. I mean, these type of things happen more often than you realize, and I think the effect on just the morale and esteem of the basketball culture on all levels is just through the roof. I mean, you're a kid knowing that, you know, KD is just like three feet away from you, and you're, you're from L.A. You're like, man, I love L.A. You know what I mean? <laughs> And so you just and, and you're just it's inspiring, guys. I mean, we can't mm-hmm. take you know we, it's inspiring. I'm just be blunt. Well, remember too, like that that period with the NBA lockout, everybody in the NBA descended to LA because yeah. they, you know they're all getting their offseason workouts here. Everybody was playing in the Drew. Yeah, and like that that summer to me really felt like moment in LA basketball culture. 
and like and like a like a solidification of a shift that was happening Absolutely. because you really saw a lot of players year i mean a lot of the meetings were happening in LA you know some some on the east coast but some out here as well like the the players association meetings so th these guys were here a lot anyway and then they were entrenching themselves in places like the Drew League that have been a part of LA basketball culture for a long time but then all of a sudden everybody's becoming aware of it Absolutely. Definitely a defining moment. My brother Josiah actually uh, shot a lot of footage that summer up at the Drew League. I mean, he, they, yeah. in the, he, he was there with Kobe, played against James Harden and hit the game winner. Um, that summer was one of the most incredible summers of basketball um, that because I was in New York. And so I was I was hanging out around the St. John's program. Steve Lavin was the head coach. So I was I was out there, but I was, you know, you know, obviously I was working out guys, Mo Harkless, Charlie Villanueva. This is when Mo was a freshman at St. John's. So I was plugged into the basketball scene in New York. And it was just, it was crazy live out there. Everybody was trying to get a run. Nobody, you know, because the season was over. The meetings were taking place. And then I'm, I'm talking to people in L.A. I'm seeing what's going on out there. And it's the same type of energy. And I'm like, man, what is going on right now? And I'm hearing about all the guys showing up at the runs and this and that. I'm like, man, this is L.A. right now. So it was Definitely a, a, a highlight. In the I, so I, I want to ask you to talk a little bit about UCLA here because, and this is, I think this is relevant to the conversation we were having with the Lakers before, because like, you know, we sit here and like, we, you know, try, especially you know, the expectations are so high. You try to micro analyze everything. What could be the little thing that makes a difference? You know, you guys won that title and you know, I forgot. I always forget. The, the the Tyus Edney play, the famous play against Mizzou, which, by the way, was the team that I was rooting for as a kid because oh. we grew up in St. Louis. So I um, that that just crushed my heart. Uh, that was the second round. Like, that was not, like, late in the tournament. It wasn't, like, the semifinal. Like, that was early in the tournament. And, you know, like, that play. You guys don't win that game. The whole thing, like, the whole trajectory of UCLA basketball changes forever. How thin are the margins? Like when when you have a team that can win, that should win, and maybe even a little bit better. But like, how thin are the margins that we're talking about here, both with you guys, and then kind of apply that outward? Uh, incredibly thin. I mean, when you are in a position to win a championship, you as a team have to operate, um, you know, the right way. Not only on the floor, so you don't just have to be in unison on the court. You got to operate the right way off the court. And just a little insight on the Missouri game, I, you know, I think I think oh. we were up late. I think we were up late the night before, all just kind of talking. We had a conversation that ran a little long. It was it was pure innocence, no drinking, no hanging out, nothing like that. Pure, you know, guys, Ed, all of us in a room, two, three in the morning. You know, the trainer has to tell us, that, "Hey, guys, go to bed." You know, what are you doing up? Hey, man, just, you know, vibing. You know, but you know, that sleep, that lack of sleep, that lack of that that throwing off our routine just that little bit, you know, when, you know, we had played our first round game, you know, none of that happened and we ran through the guys. I don't know if that mattered, but to, my, to your point, I feel like, you know, you, you just, you just have to do everything the right way and you got to have the right breaks. Um, uh, we had the right uh, fortune has to go your way. Tyus Edney knocks down that shot. And then in the semifinals, he ends up like breaking his wrist and has to be out the championship game. So we had to have another guy to step up. So, you know, it's 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 one of those things where the stars have to be aligned, and you know, all your your everything has to be dang near perfect. So the margin 
for error is is next to nothing. I mean, look at the Lakers and last year, you know, I mean, there was a lot of times that, you know, I felt that that feeling in my stomach where I felt like this was it, you know what I mean? And, and so in the playoffs and I'm just like, oh man, you know, but then they came through. And so, you know, that's kind of my take on it. You know, I'm sure people look at things differently or whatever, but I just, from my experience, especially at UCLA, I just noticed how, and then taking my my first year, which is my freshman year, and comparing it to other years in which I didn't operate or we didn't operate the same way, you can see the difference in the, how that type of stuff really matters. Because you guys were still good. I mean, you you know, your, your teams were always, you know, top, you know, what was the worst team you were on, like 15th, 16th ranked in the country? But that's not one. It's no. hard. <laughs> no, it ain't. <laughs> so it's hard. It's hard to win it, man. That's and that's why for a program like a UCLA that's you know that won ten in eleven years. Shoot, did you? Only, we've only won one in the last forty some years, and that's for perspective, you know. So, how hard is that for you to watch right now? Well, you know what, I, UCLA is is provides such a source of like like light and joy for me that. It's I, I, I view it through a lens that's not really I don't look at it as hard to watch. I, I love just, you know, the uh, the optimism of what could happen this year. That's okay. kind of how I view the Bruins. And, you know, every year I kind of, you know, from, you know, uh, I, I get behind them. I cheer for them. I, I, you know, I try to support them the best of my ability. Um, I love, you know, some of the some of their players, the young players, the toughness, the head coach, Mick Cronin. He's come in, done a heck of a job of restoring some of our UCLA culture back um, and just the way the guys play makes you proud win or lose. Cause they compete, you know, for 40 minutes, they're going to leave it all on the floor. And that's all you can ask for is an alum. Okay. This, you, oh, go ahead. Andy. Really quick. I want a uh, three teamer on the uh, chat board has a question for you. Chris, what are your thoughts on Cronin? Many like myself thought Earl Watson should have been hired. What, what specifically do you like about Mick Cronin? Well, I like Mick Cronin's, toughness in his approach and in the way he coaches he coaches you up he coaches you hard i you know my theory is that you know if if you know if you're any kind of player if you're, any, if you're worth your salt as a player you can take being coached up hard and respond and, and mick cronin has and he's reestablished sort of that ben howland era defensive mentality defensive intensity you can see it on the way they show on screens and talking on picks and diving on the floor and throwing their body around to block out you can see the toughness is back in the program and, and, and i love that sort of you know sort of that michigan state kind of mentality back tom Izzo, you know when he breaks out the football pass they they brought some of that back to ucl <laughs> he breaks out football pads in practice man tom Izzo. but uh they brought some of that mick Cronus brought some of that back to ucla and uh it makes you proud as an alum because they're competing. And so when you compete and you play that style, you're going to be in games, whether you like it or not. And so that makes you feel good. I mean, they got blown out the other day versus USC, but they're missing uh, uh, they're missing some guys and the injuries. And sometimes you just can't, you know, you can't overcome that. I the, the, One of the things that I think is fascinating, like, because UCLA, UCLA basketball, USC football, like these are iconic things like in this town in terms of you know really nationally in terms of national brands for collegiate sports but collegiate sports are so different now than they used to be like i think about how my kids take in sports yeah. and the way they do it it's personality driven it's highlight driven it's all this stuff and none of that plays i think well for college sports um, no, how do you how do you restore do you think college sports to the 
to the kind of relevance that they had like nationally where your teams aren't sort of regionally interesting or whatever, but like people really care nationally about what happens with some of these teams. Cause it feels very different to me. Yeah. No, Admittedly as somebody who doesn't watch a lot of college basketball. Those days are gone. Uh, and I don't ever think they're coming back. I'm going to be quite mm. honest with you. The college basketball model sort of come under fire, you know, over the last several years. And I, I just don't feel like, you know, there's it'll ever be like it was in the in the 70s 80s the 90s you know even the early 2000s when you know michigan state and the flintstones and this and that and all these different programs that you these these teams that you kind of knew and knew the players and this and you know it that's it it's over because you know nba now takes president precedence the way it's consumed you know, from your phones, your tablets, all these apps, you know, college, you, you can consume it, you know, Pac-12 app, ACC, this and that. But I just don't feel like the guy, the players are as big as stars, you know, one and done sort of hurt the mm -hmm. fan loyalty of college basketball. And that was a process you saw happen yeah. over 20 years. And so now we're here. And the 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 fan, the college basketball fan, the diehard follow it, you know, the dedicated person, myself, the alum, et cetera. But the everyday sports fan might not necessarily be interested in college basketball on their pecking order of things that they're, you know, they're scrolling through on their phone. I just I, don't see it. Sorry, go ahead. No, uh, fin finish your thought. Finish your I just thought. don't see it. And I, I don't see it ever getting back to that way to answer your question, Brian. I don't see it ever getting back to that style, that 90s, 80s stuff. Never. I, I think also, too, I mean, the the emphasis that we've seen and the focus and the questions being asked the last, I don't know, probably 15 or so years about the need to to compensate players more. Exactly. I, I think we it, it's beyond just the the one and done, which I agree has definitely the, – the one and done has hurt continuity with, with college programs and things like that, having options – like the G League or you know like what Brandon Jennings did going to Italy stuff like that 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 hurts the the foundation of of college sports but i think also just people examine it more now and like the the money now is so massive that's getting generated i think it's started to increasingly become just harder to ignore those inequities and i mean maybe it, the entire system was always Kind of fucked up to begin with, and, and always constructed wrong to begin with. Possibly, yeah, possibly. by possibly, I mean it, it was. was. But but I think before the money wasn't so outrageous that you couldn't look past it, or you know, it, it becomes now so much more difficult to rationalize this. Yeah, like unless you really just don't care at all. Right. It just becomes harder. I mean, you, you see, co you know, coaches now trying to justify why, you know, amateurism needs to be kept in place. And they sound like idiots. Yeah. And, and you can tell they don't even believe what they're actually saying. Like, they may believe the need for it in terms of the power structure. And, you know, it's one of the things I think it's forgotten about a lot. Like, if these players start having more means to, you know, literal means – like the power structure between them and the coaches change right in, on some level. It becomes and, like you know, the NBA. It becomes yeah, like the NBA. Exactly. But and, like and those coaches aren't trying to give up that power. They've enjoyed and, and you know, look, I played for coaches in college that I love to this day. So I'm not sure out and generalizing coaches that have this attitude. But let's be real, you know, they they were beneficiaries 
of a of a system that you know disproportionately did not compensate people that were basically getting them paid. So that part of it is that inequity is always that wrong mm-hmm. with me. I've uh, you know I've never really I've never really enjoyed that part of the NCAA watching it, and I'm glad that consciousness in our culture, basketball culture, has really you know sort of to show itself, and people actually you know are speaking out. And there's been you know like Ed O'Bannon had a I had a landmark case against For who you play. You played with that. Yeah. It was my teammate, my freshman mm-hmm. year. Uh, one of the, you know, one of the great men that I've ever come in contact with, but you know, he, his landmark case against the NCAA kind of opened the way for athletes being compensated for the use of their likeness and image. I mean, imagine that you can't use your likeness. Yeah. I had opportunities in college to where, you know, I mean, modeling and different types of you know clothing and stuff. I could uh, being an extra in the movie, you know, picking up five seven hundred. Nice low key. I'm handsome flex. That was good. <laughs> Come on, man. I mean, no, but I, mean I, I had those opportunities. My inability to cash in on this—it's—it's <laughs> it's just unfair. I mean, I'm just telling the story, man. I had those, so so look. I had to just walk around looking this good for free. <laughs> I oh my like <laughs> i wasn't trying to say it like that but like, <laughs> i had to i had to turn down that stuff man and i need you know you could use that money so it yeah. resonates with me my son's actually a current student athlete uh playing at the university of oregon uh but he, he's a walk-on there so um you know his his situation is a little different but it was still all the same his experience is, is still sort of the same you know he's been going through some stuff up there um, at Oregon and just adjusting to all this COVID stuff, not to get off topic, mm-hmm, but, yeah, sure. you know, again, so I'm, I say that just so you guys get that, you know, I'm not like, you know, hating on the NCAA, sure. but what's fair is fair. You know what I mean, guys? What's fair is fair and enough is enough. I, I mean, I, I brought it up, not you. Um, <laughs> like, I, I mean, you brought up you brought up how good looking you are. Andy brought oh, yeah. up the answer. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean like if, if there's a way like for rep like what would you say if there, if there were a way for reparations just in terms of what you lost out on on being so handsome and not being able to capitalize on like can, is there a dollar amount? How many zeros? <laughs> Thousands. No, all of us had opportunities. You know, all of us had opportunities, no matter how level our level of handsomeness. Uh, we all had opportunities that we passed on, and Boy, shots I mean, fired at Josiah. Uh, yeah, well, he's he's always talking like that. He's Mister Conceited. I mean, he thinks he's, you know, <laughs> Billy D. Williams or whoever. I don't know this guy. <laughs> um, I, I know we wanted to talk with you too about uh, your career overseas because you experienced some pretty crazy stuff, like in terms of both, like adjusting to different cultures and you know places that really are very different than America, but also like. You know, finding yourself in the middle of a war zone, like a literal war zone, as you're uh, trying to carve out a basketball career um, in the Middle East, for example. Yeah, yeah. And that war zone that you speak of was uh, in Lebanon around 2005, man. I mean, you know, in going over there, I, you know, I had, I had just spent the last four years in Qatar. So and I was headed to Lebanon. So I wasn't really nervous, per se, about that part of it. Um, nothing had really happened over there in a while. And so they may, you know, and they always reassure you that everything's okay. So I felt fine. But, you know, when I got over there, you know, as soon as I stepped off the plane and, you know, I saw the military presence, um, not, and then, you know, I would drive, driving around on the streets and there's no traffic lights and there's just, you know, kind of a lawlessness feel to it. You know, I was kind of like, Hmm, where, 
what kind of place am I at right now? You know, and then, you know, one day, one day, uh, along during the season, um, I'm kind of hanging out in the coffee shop. Um, and then I hear these reverberations on the windows and the windows start shaking and I'm just kind of like, Whoa, what's that? And, um, the people in the coffee shop just kind of nonchalantly, you know, they, they thought they chalked it up to, uh, Israel doing a flyover or, you know, a sonic boom or something like that. They explained it to me. I was like, Oh, okay. Um, it's, it just so happened. I had a physical therapy appointment in about 45 minutes, uh, in the city of Beirut. Now I was 20, 20, 25 minutes away in a city called Castellique. So, um, literally five minutes after I hear the reverberations, I start making my drive to Beirut to my physical therapy. Um, as I get closer to Beirut, I can sort of start to see, you know, some kind of commotion kind of going on, you know, but, but it's Beirut and, you know, I'm kind of like, okay, you know, it's not a, you know, this isn't anything, you know, it's normal. You get, you get immune to like stuff like that. <laughs> you know, just kind of like, oh, okay, you know, it's normal. So I'm driving, I get to my, to my physical therapy, I knock on the door, I open the door and they look like they just saw a ghost. They couldn't believe I was standing there. I'm like, what's going on? I have an appointment, right? You guys, <laughs> I'm thinking like, you know, like I missed my appointment up or something. But, and then, and then they began, they proceeded to tell me that um, the reverberation I heard was a 900 pound car bomb driving into the caravan of Whoa. the prime minister and one of the most revered people in the history of Lebanon, this guy, uh, this uh, man named Rafiq Harir. And, and he was assassinated. And, and so here I am, stupid ass me, driving to the, uh, the site of a bomb. I, I stood there for about five minutes, shaking and sort of just realizing what I did and the realness of where I was at just in that moment. And I understood that it was like, it no longer was really a game. I was, I was in a war zone. I was in the heart of some shit. And, you know, I had to start to operate like that. Is that why you wanted to go actually to the site where it happened, like to see it up close, like really understand what this was? Yeah, that that is why uh, I eventually did do that. Um, later on, I did see, and, they, and it blew off the side of a hotel. You know, the Whoa. building they blew off a complete building. You know, um, to to see that and just to see the ruins and to know that that type of stuff is happening 15, 20 minutes. I mean, it's like you being. I don't know, Inglewood to, you know, Westwood or something like that. So you're mm -hmm. in Inglewood, something, a bomb go, a 900 pound, you know, car bomb goes off of Westwood. It's sort of like, yo, what the hell is going on out here? But again, after that moment, I sort of became interested in everything that was going on on the political level out there. So I educated myself. Um, I really talked to the people a lot and got an understanding of their plight, what, what this was about, why this happened. And it was really, really an interesting, and it was a it was a heart wrenching sort of story that I kind of you know gravitated to. What is what is it about? So like the the experience of playing overseas, like how how does it change? But I think both the way that you look at basketball, but also just sort of the way you look at you know sort of your worldview, because I would imagine both are impacted by experiences like that. Yeah, great question. As far as basketball is concerned, it was just it, it opens your eyes to the power of the game and how far the game reaches and how you're just a small part of this bigger purpose of basketball. Um, I really believe that. And, you know, I witnessed it because, you know, you go I'd go to these small rural, rural towns 
in Turkey and, and in Lebanon and, you know, Russia, you know, p- small population, but they, they would have a hoop, full court, two hoops, you know, ready to play, stands, you know, crowd. And I was always fascinated by that, that part of it. Um, I think as far as the adjustment from a cultural side of things, you know, it, it just depends on, you know, the country you go to, the club, that the team that mm-hmm. you play for. And honestly, as an American, it's whether or not, you know, English is a major language being spoken. So if you go to places where you can find English, your adjustment's going to be a lot easier than it would be if you, you had to kind of pick up and learn the language. I learned a lot of Arabic just by way of um, being around those people and, and hanging out. And, and so I pick up words and things like that. You know, you adjust to the food. You, you'd, be, you'd be surprised some of these countries, though, you go to when you can find McDonald's or an Applebee's or Dairy Queen. I mean, the car had a damn Dairy Queen. I was like, I, 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 I'm really disappointed that the thing that we're exporting to the world is Applebee's. Applebee's. Um, I feel like even in that genre of restaurant, I feel like we could do better than Applebee's. Like, that's not the best that we have to offer just hey. for that. Hey, when you haven't had anything American, American food in six, eight months, and you run up on the Applebee's, man, it's like you just went to Mastro's. You know, you just, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like that little, that bullshit steak at Applebee's, man, it's like a porterhouse. I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> I, but I, that's not one, though, I, to Brian's point. Like, I, we've talked with enough players who played overseas and and just you know having even a vague idea of global economics and global brands like we know there are mcdonald's you know we know there's going to be these big chains i did not think applebee's penetrated the the global market yes <laughs> the way apparently it has like you can find an applebee's in the middle east i did I mean, not know that literally when i was playing there they had an applebee's they had an a and w root beer wow a burger w. That's solid. seriously, it was ludicrous. I couldn't believe it. I don't I even know where an AW is here. Uh, there I, are anymore. Look, I went to Malaysia for one time for like a big tournament championship, and I'm looking for some food. Malaysia, they don't got nothing, right? So I go to the mall. I'm just like, I'll just go see what's up in the mall. They have a Kenny Rogers chicken. <laughs> Kenny Rogers chicken, seriously, good, literally good baked rotisserie, mashed potatoes. I'm like, I'm in Malaysia. And I just got some Kenny. Right? I couldn't believe it, man. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. But how yeah. how how uh, experimental were you with food? This is uh, this is always something I'm interested in. Oh, I went I went all the way in. I went all the way in. I wanted to try everything that the natives were trying or whatever the dish was. So, I mean, in each in all the countries, you know, I mean, I, I'm in. I was in Qatar, and you know, they they were they were eating um like goat or something. They cook a whole big goat and they put rice in it and then they put it out on like a, a big old like blanket, if you will, mm-hmm. and like you sit there <laughs> with a bunch of dudes and you're like ripping off pieces of goat and like eating it with the rice. Oh, that sounds really said, good. That sounds really good. That sounds hey, really hey, good. Then they bring you like orange or strawberry sodas. And so you're just like drinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, really? That's what I said. No, that's what I did. I'm like, what the? They bringing me soda. So, I, I, so that was in Qatar. Now, Lebanon, you know, I definitely tried all the food. I got, I fell in love with all the, um, they, they, they do this thing with Lebanon. They make this cheese. They like bake this cheese. They put pistachio over it. It's like the most fattening thing you have ever heard of eating in your whole life. And I used to crush that. So, so no, everywhere I went, I pretty much, uh, I, I dived in. Is All that right. the exception of the rule? Like you guys, 
or is or is it hard to even generalize that when guys go overseas? Like what? I, I, just like when you like some do some guys do what you did and just I'll try that and I'll, I'll do whatever, or do other guys just like find me Kenny Rogers? You know, for the most <laughs> for the most part, you know, guys that I played with, they were really anti. You know that the food, the the uh, traditional food that was there, they were always looking for you know a McDonald's, and so sometimes guys would find you know something a KFC and just go there every single day. Yeah. You know, and I couldn't, I could, I can't do that. You know, I can't. I have to find other, other types of food. I can't eat something every single day, especially KFC. Now, if it's like Subway, see, I can eat Subway every single day because I, I get a turkey and you know, and so I feel healthy. You know, right? KFC, no, as, a, as a professional athlete, that's right. I, I remember. I'm, I'm so embarrassed when I look back on this, and, and my excuse is I was like 21 and a college student, so you only have so much money. But when I went to Mardi Gras. Like in New Orleans, one of the great food cities, not just in this country, but anywhere. I would say 95% of what I ate was the Popeyes next door to our hotel. We wow. stayed in this really shitty hotel right next to a Popeyes. And, and you ate Popeyes I, every day? Oh, not just every day, like multiple times a day. Dude. Like basically, I subsided on Popeyes, beer, and vodka. Like that's basically all I ate. I think we had like one good meal in New Orleans. That's like disgusting. One reasonably good meal. Although it, that that chicken sandwich is excellent. Yeah, the one that's I mean, part of the chicken sandwich. Yeah, I, get, that thing is I get the three piece wings. I get the wings. I get the box. You, you don't guy. go, but you don't go to New Orleans for the Popeyes. <laughs> like, I mean, I'm sorry, you you just don't do that though. <laughs> now, I think, um, but the funny thing is, the times I've been to New Orleans. The only thing I had was a beignet. I didn't really get too deep in the gumbo, the etouffee, none of that. I just had a beignet. So you're you're eating, you're ripping off shreds of, you know, just sitting around with dudes, just ripping off pieces of goat and rice and all these other things when you're in Lebanon, in, in Lebanon or, or Qatar, but never ha actually had etouffee in, no, in New Orleans? No, not, not a fish. No, I've had gumbo, not, not etouffee, nothing in New Orleans. But, you know, I'm open to it. I've had... Um, I was in South Carolina. I don't know why I thought about this, but I had crocodile. I don't know if you guys have tried that. Before. Yeah, I have. Or That's alligator. Good. Excuse me, alligator. Tastes like chicken. Yeah, duck. Totally fried. So yeah, I had a I, when I was in Australia, I had a, I had a lot of that stuff. I had I had right. kangaroo and I had uh, crocodile or alligator, whichever one they gave me, and I had all that stuff. It's tasty. Nice. Yeah, and we we also learned. Uh, I I can't remember if it was uh, snake. If it was Qatar, uh, uh, Qatar, Lebanon. Uh, you had a bit of a side gig, a little bit of a side business. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> see, you gonna bring this one up? Hold on. Of guys, course, we are. Sure my, let me make sure my phone is situated correctly. I, I, well, I, okay, I was gonna say that ain't it. <laughs> Sideways. My charger, I have to put my charger on. How, how do I look? How oh, no, that, now you're good. All right, all right. So no, so in Qatar, man, it was interesting. Like, you know, I was making good money my first couple of years there. So it wasn't necessarily that I need the money, but as a, as a businessman, I always like extra money. Uh, and so I figured out, you know, a way to make that money. Um, so here's the setup in Qatar. There's, you know, it's, it's a, it's an Islamic country. So it's a dry country, you know, except for the hotels, which only expatriates can, can attend and go to. Uh, meaning non-Qataris, obviously. And then there was a liquor store. Um, not really a liquor store, but like a warehouse, a big old liquor warehouse, if you will. Uh, not your traditional liquor store like on the corner or anything like that. But um, and, and, and that was the only place in Qatar where us expatriates could buy alcohol. So um, and the allotment each month on your alcohol 
was your salary, how much you made per month. And you would have to bring in your, 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 your salary, your paper, your contract, show them, sign it off. I mean, it was all official. So um, once I figured out that I was unique in the size of my alcohol license, <laughs> <laughs> I was unique. Everybody didn't have that type of license. Everybody you know, couldn't buy that much quantity. Everybody didn't have access. And once I, once I figured that part out, I started to make a little extra cash selling alcohol. And now, you know, I had a variety, a wide, diverse clientele base, but um, it was something that was lucrative. And, you know, I don't feel anything about it. We had a good time. It was safe. I mean, you know, it was all good. I, you know, it, I made some cash. <laughs> no, how, do, how, do, how does this transaction go down? Like, do you have to worry about, like, you know, selling to a cop? I mean, like, how does this work? Well, well, so the thing about the Qatar, man, it's so crazy. And I hope my guys don't kill me for this, but all the cops, all the military were like my, I had teammates that were cops, mm-hmm. military. So I, you know, and I kind of had a little reputation. They knew me. I led the country to the first championship they ever had. So it was like a whole thing. So I was good. I was good. I didn't have to worry about that. And so, you know, hey, and it was simple, man. Come through, you know. And back then, what was what, what was I? What did I have? Johnny Walker, like nice. like blue label, red label, um, you know, Jack Daniels was, you know, you can you can mark it up a little bit for the Jack, anything, you know, like that, you know, <laughs> a little bit. And then they, they they you know, beer wasn't wasn't big on the agenda. You know, it was all whiskey. <laughs> they have well, no, but that's the beer is not an efficient thing to be carrying around either. Like no, you want to be like not at all. small bottles. You can stack more of them inside your trench coat when you open it up and be like, "Yeah, what beer's do you want? not the move. Beer's not the move." Yeah. What, uh, what did you? What? Uh, I, I'm just curious. What did you find you could do the biggest markup on? Like that people are like, "Oh shit, you have that." Um, believe it or not, like was I think it was some Jim Beam. Jim Beam, dude. They oh, like they the, like these are the they, same they, people who opened they, they an Applebee's. Like, it was all, it was so off brand in Qatar, meaning just the way they the you know what I what we think as you know quality and this and that they kind of weren't on that. They were like you know to, to them Jim Beam or or like the 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 basic level um 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 um, um uh, J and B Scotch, you know, right? Wow, like they they were they were going crazy over that. It was a niche. Huh. It was like a niche for them. I don't know. It was weird. That that's is, funny. yeah. I, but again, I so is Applebee's. <laughs> um, See, that's what I mean. See, that's what I mean, though. Applebee's, you know, you know, uh, Jim Beam. It was like, what the fuck? Well, it's like my fa- my favorite one of my favorite stories, like about American restaurants like that. Is I was sitting and I was at Cheesecake Factory, and like catty corner over was a, a guy, like a, a guy with very clearly like five or six people from Europe. Right. And they were all kind of going through and looking at it and like, oh, well, maybe we'll order this and this. And the guy tried to explain it like, no, 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 we don't need all that food. Like we can order like two things and share for all of us. <laughs> like, <laughs> the, the, the concept of just how absurdly large the portions are at cheesecake factory. I was like, that is that's America right there. Just no, I, I love wild, that. unnecessary excess with food. No, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. I'm hey. a big guy. I'm okay with that. I like, yeah, I, I'm not going to lie. Like we will sometimes do, you know, we, we pick Maggiano's because they give you way too much to eat at once. And then they like, Hey, what do you want to take home? They give you a thing to take home. That's it's like, you know, bang for your buck. 
Exactly. Oh, man. I mean, like that place in Buca de Beppo, like, yeah, like yeah, exactly. you you could live off a week just yeah. from your leftovers. Yeah, I went like, to Buca the first time like three years ago. I didn't even know about it. I was like, yo, this is the spot. They must feel <laughs> they must feel though threatened by Maggiano's because like for a while, Buca de Beppo was like the only place you could go to that had that type of excess. Yeah. And all of a sudden, Maggiano's like they've got this deal where you go there and like you can you can literally. That's what I just order. said. That's what I was talking about. They order and they give you a pasta to take home. Just right. That's that's, that's what I'm wild. saying. Like they get this deal that that you know like it's ba- it feels to me like shots you know shots fired at Buca de Beppo. That's wild. Yeah, it's a lot of food. It really um, is. It's kind again, of insane. America. Um, <laughs> last thing, last thing I want to ask you is like you, I mean, you you got people to pay you to play basketball. And I always, you know, as people who cover you know the league and you know, cover, we always like to tell people like you know, people you know say like, oh, that guy sucks. Like this guy did that, you know, the, the you know, look at guys He's in the G scrub. League, like these guys are scrubs. Like, and like the 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 15th guy on a G League roster could show up drunk to your pickup game and throttle every single player on that floor without trying. Like, you know, you, you know, you played at UCLA, you played professionally. All this. Physically though, the thing that here's where I'm going with this. When you look at somebody like LeBron, because, you know, you played, but you had injuries, like, you know, at different times, something got hurt and all that. When you look at somebody who's done what he's done, not just at the level that he's done, but stayed as healthy and productive. What 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 is that? <laughs> like, how do you how do you view somebody like him as somebody who played the game? Well, you know, D Wade. I was watching the interview with D Wade the other day when he was commenting on. He was sitting with Gilbert Arenas, commenting on how he thinks you know this may be LeBron's best season or how he's gotten better, et cetera. But one of the things he said was that, you know, this is something that you get from God. Mm-hmm. This isn't something like, you know, you can say he was like, LeBron spent a million, two million on his body every year. But I'm going to tell you, that's not it. I can spend a million dollars on my body and I'm still get hurt. So it's really just he's been blessed, man. He's been blessed. Now, the, the physical stuff, the taking care of the body, that definitely plays a role. But this guy is a he's a he's just a he's a marvel. I mean, I've just never seen anybody that that that. 6'9", 6'8", 260, 270, 250, whatever, you know, you want to say he's played at throughout his whole career that ran that fast, that jumped that high with that much. And people say he doesn't have wiggle and this and that. But you're you're basically Carl Malone playing this sort of perimeter style for 18 years and you're not getting hurt. Like other than the hammy um, a couple years ago, you know, where you, you know, that, that right. I think that was the only time I remember. And I've been following LeBron's career his whole career. The only time I remember him getting hurt, he might have been hurt before, but it's like if he gets hurt, you just, you know, it's like it's it's a shock. It's like what? It's like Superman, you know, it's like when Superman, um, what happened to Superman? I remember Superman too. Yeah. Superman was down on his luck, and it's like that. It's like that's that when LeBron gets hurt, it's sort of like you're just like, damn, like you can't believe it. Well, he was willing to give up his powers, remember? Oh, yeah. He actually he actually sacrificed them and then he managed to get them after being told this was permanent and there was no reversal of it. He just kind of managed to get them back. Like, you know, he he, he tricked uh he tricked Zod and Nan and Ursula in the ice. Oh, yeah, yeah, in the ice yeah. with the red light thing. 
But they never, you know, they were like, oh, he was on the outs in the if protected. Andy, if Timothy Mozgov can be traded three times after signing that contract, <laughs> then Superman can find a way to get his powers back. I'm just saying that they made such a big thing about how he was sacrificing his powers for good, for love. He could never turn this thing around. And then basically they just let him get him back pretty easily without any real explanation of how yeah, this you need, works. You needed you need a couple more movies, man. So I don't blame. Still, you. it's still the best Superman. Oh, it but, is. But, the best. But, but, but no question. And the, the the I know you guys have heard this. That guy reminds me. That one um, guy reminds me of um, who's the guy that used to play at Minnesota? Petrovich. Oh yeah, yeah. The big, the big, the big guy. guy. Yeah. Uh, non. His name is Non. Non. Yeah. But any, but anyway, I'm sorry. I don't know why that came in my head. But back, but so so that to me, LeBron injuries, that part of it, having played, understanding what it's like as an athlete, just in general, pro athlete, it's it's one of the most remarkable feats I've ever seen in sports. Period. Yeah. The the difference yeah. between like me and LeBron is if I had enough disposable cash, uh, that a difference. <laughs> no, but this is like no, but for real, this is like the big difference. If I had the type of disposable cash she has where I could afford to spend a million dollars just to maintain my body, that would guarantee I did nothing. nothing. Like I, I would never do a damn thing if <laughs> I had that kind of money. Exactly. No, like that type of money motivates him, whereas it, it would keep me just couch bound. And like that, yeah, I I did a radio thing. I probably will let you go after this, but I I did a radio interview today, and I was asked the question: Is LeBron better now than he you know was five, ten years, whatever it was? And I said no, because you know people you forget now because he is just so strong and so he doesn't quite get off the floor in the same way. Like LeBron used to be able to play above the rim when he wanted to. Like he was, I mean, was and remains a sick athlete. Yeah. But what is different? Like he's got that thing now where he like it's like Star Wars, where you know they're at the cantina and he just these aren't the droids you're looking for. Like right. he can control games yeah. like that without. Yes. So his his ability to manipulate what's around him is so elevated at this point. It almost makes up for all of the other little physical. physical. Things and so I, I, he's not. I don't think he's better than he was. Like peak Cleveland, you know, when they beat the Warriors. Are you kidding me? What he did in that series, but the fact that you even have to like think about it for two seconds is amazing. No, absolutely. He's he's and he's done an, an incredible job of accepting who he is now at this stage of his career, understanding how to pick his spots, and then now he's playing to that facilitator strength as far as understanding. Remember LeBron didn't used to take the shot a lot back in the mm -hmm. day and he'd have it and we'd be everybody, man, why didn't he just take that? I love seeing him now taking that shot, cocky, confident, and then hitting it and then being like, man, what, what time y'all thought it was with me, man? He places bets it. on him. He actually places bets, in-game yes, bets with like teammates. Hey, this corner three, it's going in. I mean, like, that's how, that's confident, man. Yes, he's like, rich. He is rich. <laughs> that's true. I mean, a hundred dollar bet for him is like that ain't much. Found ain't much. Okay. Um, all right, Chris Johnson. Uh, you can find him at. Uh, oh, geez, I just forgot point your Twitter handle. Pro. Point at forward pro at point forward pro. 
You find sure. him there. Uh, this was a ton of fun. Thank you so much for coming on, man. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. It was a lot of fun, man. Hope we can do it again. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, tomorrow night, Ricky Cobb, uh, who you may know as the guy from Super 70 Sports. Um, nice. That if you if yeah. you never if you don't follow Super 70 Sports on Twitter, on Instagram, and all those places, you should. It is so much fun. If you are particularly of a certain age and remember all those references. We are old people, and we do. Uh, so he will be on tomorrow. Claire DeLoon on Friday, and we've got a bunch of stuff already lined up for next week as well. We will be taking Monday off because yes. it's a holiday. It is a um, holiday everybody. We want that. Uh, so we will see everybody tomorrow night with Ricky Cobb, Super 70 Sports. Donkey Needle on. All right, guys.